This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects is the free app that lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download Bloomberg Connects to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome back to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences and cultural experiences and how they affect their life and work. And this episode, the final podcast of this series, is A Brush With Tala Madani. Talat was born in 1981 in Tehran and now lives and works in Los Angeles. She moved from Iran to Monmouth, a small town in Oregon on the west coast of the United States in 1994. And this was actually a seminal moment in her artistic life because as she learned English, she also developed a profound interest in drawing and visual communication. She eventually went to Oregon State University to study art and political science before doing a master's in art at Yale University. I vividly remember seeing Talar's paintings for the first time in 2009 in a show called Dazzle Men at the Pilar Corius Gallery in London and being disarmed by their frankness, their absurdity, their ribald humour, their unsettling violence, their incredible intensity and immediacy. Those paintings feature groups of bald and bearded men and riffs on the dazzle pattern of camouflage that was used in the First World War. And these men cavorted in absurd groupings. They were often covered in stripes and other dazzle patterns. There was so much in those paintings. Talar has said that among the inspirations for depicting these groups of men were her experiences in Kreuzberg in Berlin and particularly watching the Turkish community there where the men would go to these tea rooms which were effectively social clubs which were exclusively for men and she would wonder what was happening behind the closed doors and the frosted glass of those places. And it's difficult to pin down exactly what she captures. On the one hand, these figures are ridiculous and pathetic, and the paintings can appear savagely satirical. But on the other hand, they seem to be having a good and perfectly harmless time. Many have argued that Talar's work is a sardonic take on Iranian or Middle Eastern sexual politics. But she's been quick to state that while the male figure in her work appears to have Middle Eastern features, he is in fact an everyman. And as she told the art newspaper in an interview in 2017, if you only think about him in relation to Iranian politics, you're missing the point. Often Talar's work has abject qualities. Bodily fluid and human genitals and orifices loom large in the work. There's a lot of excrement, urine, blood, semen and other fluids, and they're often captured in fantastical painterly flourishes. Talar makes stuff happen that only paint can do. Light is projected from men's bottoms in the shitty disco series. They puke and piss stripes in those early Dazzle Men works. And in her paintings and in her brilliant short animations, there's a sense that Talar is wittily subverting the history of painting too, and particularly abstraction. Talar hasn't often painted women, but that's changed a bit since she became a mother and made a series called Ship Mums, in which a female figure is painted in a sort of brown, sludgy colour that of course resembles excrement, and appears in a series of absurd tableaux. Around this mother figure are babies, who unavoidably recall the men in those earlier paintings, and seem to be possessed of a similarly anarchic intent. The resulting works are again a subversion of art history, and in this case of course, the pure tradition of the mother and child. 
A striking element in the Ship Mum series and in the work she's created in recent years and months is her approach to space and light. Often the events happen in dark rooms with dramatic lighting, some figures can appear almost ghostly, and in a bold new painting called Recital, for instance, a young girl plays the piano as a shadowy figure in a doorway looms ominously yet cartoonishly close to her, and another figure lies prone beneath the piano. What I love about Talar's work is that it appears constantly to be shifting in new directions as she pushes her imagery and materials beyond boundaries. But I wanted to begin our conversation by going back to her early years in the US as a teenager and asking about how, as she struggled with the English language, painting and drawing became a vital means of communication. Yeah, it's true. I had taken some English classes as a kid in Iran, but when you then come into a country and it's saturated and there's nobody else speaking Farsi, obviously you don't really know, the, you, don't, you don't understand what people are saying, people speaking so much faster. And so I was obviously also just entered school, which was meaningless because I couldn't really understand anything about biology and physics and history and all the things that were text um, specific. And it was in Oregon, not Los Angeles, which meant there were no other Farsi speakers for miles. Um, so my math got very good and my painting, I mean, oh, maybe they were both good, but I just sort of just focus on those two because that was the only space I could focus on. And actually I, I continued even thinking about doing a computer science math major, even into college. I like discrete math a lot, but as, and I painted a lot too. So it became, it definitely became a language. I mean, growing up in Iran in the eighties, um, after the revolution, during the Iran-Iraq war, they weren't what you would call a lot of cultural events at that time in Iran that you could kind of be formed by, you know, in terms of music or theater or, um, you know, what you would say, cultural, things like that. So there was definitely a, a kind of a, for me, a deficiency in that space, which then I sort of filled up myself in the apartment in Oregon that I lived in. Basically, to answer your question, it became, it is a language. I don't really have a lot of romantic relationships with cultural moments of, let's say, the 80s that maybe my generation in different people, in different countries people have grown up with because I didn't experience them on that level. So painting for me is never romantic. My engagement with art is never romantic. It's, it's always a matter of externalizing or making sense of events. So that definitely, it is a particular way of thinking about artworks, yeah. That's great. Tell me about calligraphy, because I read that you, your mum suggested that you learned calligraphy before you learned how to draw or paint. It's very fashionable. I mean, my mum thinks that she has really bad handwriting, so she wanted to help me. And in Farsi, Farsi handwriting is, you know, you... you people project a lot onto who you are based on your handwriting as opposed to, well, right, obviously right now everything is co- with computer. I mean, God forbid, we, none of us show our own handwriting to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but so she had put me in this calligraphy class as like a seven-year-old, as a, as, a, as, a, as a beginner writer. And in that class, the teacher was also um, teaching painting. And I immediately um, forced her to switch me over or add that class to me. And and he was an incredible teacher. I mean, he was just such a... Talk about being a romantic with paint. And, and so he really made me really fall in love with it. And I still have the three paintings I met in those classes 
which was like of a horse and a cabin and a trees, you know, like cliches, sun, or no, clouds. Yeah, they were fantastic. I'd like to ask you about the way that you use paint and particularly how in your work there are regular equivalences made between bodily fluid and other fluids and the paint itself. So there, there's always these metaphors, if you like, for paint which come from the body or come from, the, the, you know, even there's some that feature toothpaste, for instance. Can you say something about that, always finding equivalences for paint and allowing the paint to sort of find this space between art and life to a certain degree? Definitely. I guess it's, it's, it goes to my trust of the medium. I really trust the material and um, it's a kind of a desire to be more, to look at that materiality in a more straight on way and to sort of trust that it's going to do what I'm, what I'm thinking, trust that we can read each other. And if I just think about that thing as I'm putting that on, it'll become that. It's also a desire, become it, right? Just be, you know, be a nose, be a nose, kind of. It's a Roger Corman film quote of an artist called Bucket of Blood. And he's trying to, you know, make this sculpture with clay and he's just demanding that it should be a nose. And so that's sort of my position in the studio, like... And I do trust that, obviously, it doesn't always work, but I, that's, it goes back to really wanting to lean into it, lean into the material, lean into its, um, its, its potential, right? A kind of a marriage of my intent and its potential to kind of become something more than both of those things than could have been. It's also, like, the, the painting is also always about creating something that, setting up something that has a potential while limiting its potential so it doesn't go everywhere, right? So it's always that discussion about opening up something and closing it. So it's that, um, that's the negotiation. That's kind of the dance. And I always, and, and to allow the materiality of paint to still be itself, to me, is like the windows I leave open, kind of, for it to kind of, you know, because a white canvas is just brilliant, how, what is more exciting than a white canvas, right? And then you continuously are limiting it. So that paint to be itself is like the windows left open as well. I wanted to ask you about serial paintings and your animations. And, and if there is a moment, a sort of border, where you know that a particular image is going to be suitable for animation and another would just result in a sequence of paintings around the same theme. I mean, I do. I think anything could be an animation in a way. I don't think everything can be a painting, but I think everything can be an animation if you, if you are interested in thinking about it in terms of A, then B, then C, then, you know. Uh, what ends up being a painting is if and why you need to still that moment, right, of, of whatever that is, of colour, that moment of event, that moment of action. But also, it's also interesting because I do end up making animations which just simply give me then fluidity in the way I paint because I repeat the action so much, so much, so much, so much, you know, a thousand times over. It's, and it's like it's like an undergrad education continuously for myself, right? So there's a bizarre thing that happens there. Not intentionally, but it's a side effect. Uh, but yeah, then it's, it's a matter of choosing then what needs to become a painting or what can you stand spending two months with making an animation about right it's it's that kind that kind of choice yeah i was wondering about 
how liberating it might be also when you're animating because I love that in some of the animations you can see that you can see the erasure happening as well as the next image in, in being added so there's this process of not having to fix an image and moving on to the next one can you say something about that absolutely I mean my personality is actually quite um fearful I'm terrified generally so animations are extremely liberating in that you know there is no audience for this immediately right now nobody I mean I'm very jealous of anyone who has any kind of an editing tool in their belt right anyone who can splice and cut and take care in painting there is no such thing everything is exposed you it's all evident right so you have absolutely no security blanket with painting in a way that you do with animation and other forms of things that get, get, get edited. So it's very liberating. And, it, and then, of course, simultaneously, you realize how much better, better or how much this, 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 this sense of freedom then makes the images, in fact, of, of higher presence and quality, this, this, the lack of fear. So you, you, you're confronted again by how much your fear, in fact, it obstructs your energy to go through and actually make a good painting. So the animations really help me in so many ways. And then I realized, oh yeah, I should just pretend I'm making animation on a really large scale and then make it a painting for myself. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I'd like to ask about this idea that I love that you said that the paintings have egos and that can help determine what scale you paint them at. I presume you're not talking about the characters that you paint when you talk about the egos. I mean, it's ideas. It's, it's, I should say the ego is about the idea I mean, you know, I think about my paintings like that. I also think about every painting that I look at in this way. You know, sometimes I look at it and I think, I, gosh, that's too big. How could this person make this painting this big? Shrink it up. How could, how, uh, not to say it's egotistical, but what an exposure of the ego of this idea. And I would have reduced it. So it's, it's, it's to do with, um, it's to do with the idea, absolutely, the characters. There are no characters in the paintings. They are images, um, and we project onto those images. I mean, it's about the ego, but it's also, in truth, it's also about how much I can contain in, a mo- in the moment that I'm painting. Uh, it's very much about your relationship with that object. Can you contain this scale of an object? Are you willing to? Are you able to? And so this, this, there's, there's a few different things that have to be negotiated for it to actually then become something. It's containing. And things go into it that are quite practical. How tired are you, you know, in, in, a, given, in a given year, right? How, how present are you in a given year in terms of, like, distractions, like, let's say, of what we're dealing with right now in the world? So different things. And I'm also very interested in, in deliberately, of course, painting paintings that are very distracted, that are very tired. I mean, that's, that's quite interesting, you know, of like, of, of then setting that up and knowing that's what is gonna encapsulate the presence of you not being able to contain it, right? But those are all awareness that then you have to deliberately set that up and that becomes the meaning of the paintings in a way. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. The app offers access to numerous cultural institutions through a single download. 
Among the guides on the app is one dedicated to New Contemporaries, the leading organisation supporting emergent art practices from the UK's established art schools and alternative programmes. Since it began in 1949, New Contemporaries has championed contemporary artists and their professional development through an annual touring exhibition, selected by a panel of artists, which has been sponsored by Bloomberg since 2000. Many of the leading British artists of recent decades began their professional lives by exhibiting in the show, from Frank Auerbach and David Hockney to Mona Hatoum, Mark Leckie and Lynette Yadon-Boachi. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can explore works by each of the 36 artists selected for the Bloomberg New Contemporaries 2020 exhibition and find out about a newly created digital platform which includes contributions across a range of media from all of the artists. The New Contemporaries Guide also includes a series of alumni films. You can watch an interview with Chantal Joffe, a former guest on this podcast, in which she recalls applying for the 1996 exhibition and how that changed the course of her career. She also talks about her experience as a selector for the 2013 show. For information about selection for the New Contemporaries 2021 programme and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at app bloombergconnects.org slash a brush with. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? You know, it's so funny. It is so cliche of my generation, but it's Francis Bacon. I mean, he's probably the first person that I gasped to, you know, and I kind of, um, I felt raw with and I admired and I loved you know, and you're in high school and you're reading Kafka and you're you know, looking at Francis Bacon and, and you close your door and you're happy. <laughs> One of the interesting things that I always think about these answers is that, is, that, is that to what extent you carry Bacon with you today or whether in a way your interest in him has now diminished. I always think about Salvador Dali in my own experience and how Dali was like the first artist I loved and how I sort of, how he drifted from my from my interest to a certain degree. Other artists took his place. So is Bacon still in, in your thoughts? So I, there was a moment where I realised something in that when you love something, I, I, when I was a kid, when I loved something, I would just mimic it. I would just do a yellow paint, yellow, an orange background. I would just do someone with their mouth open. Right? I mimicked everything I loved. I would just do so many statues of uh, the Roman statues or, or, you know, just things that I love that would just mimic. And then I realized that if you love something or if you admire something, it won't work if you mimic its style. You have to understand its position, its philosophy. You know, if that's what you admire, that's what you reenact. So what is Bacon doing? He is breaking, he's breaking things. He's breaking with taste. He's pushing through his, you know, to some extent he's designing a stage where, He's allowed to then break things through. And, and in that, I'm definitely, I think I still carry him, definitely. And I do love the parallel, the synonymity of desire and fear, desire and disgust and desire and the sort of shattering. So this is quite, you know, is, it's, a, it's a great, you know, position of problem. And I think it's universal and I think it's going to be forever for you know, human beings to deal with from infancy to, you know, to um, death. I suppose also there's a similarity. 
I think when I think about your work and the way that the images appear almost to be on stage, there's a, there's there's a sort of indeterminate space, but it's you, you feel like it's being presented to you in a kind of space that resembles a stage. And obviously with Bacon, you have those space frames, but you also have that kind of, you know, there's no illusion that this is not a painting in Bacon, right? And the same with you. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, I, I hadn't been so clear about it until my assistant and my friend said to me, wow, Tyler, this month you're just making these spaces and you're not, nothing, nothing was happening. I was just able, I was, I just wanted to create a space where something could happen because nothing was, you know, because I couldn't actually bring myself to that yet. So definitely there is, um, it's like the safe space, right? Whoever's, whatever's safe space you can have. So first the canvases have to prove to me there are safe spaces, then, um, then maybe something will happen. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about historical artists that you look at the most today. Which historical artists do you turn to the most now? Yeah, so again, because I still have a, a very strong mimicking bone, I go in and out of looking at things. I, I, I look at them when I'm very depressed, when the faith is low, right? So you don't look at them just look at them on a daily basis. You look at them when you're like, you're, you know, throes of giving the whole thing up and you want to just sort of say, you know, fuck it. So I do love Fra Angelico era paintings a lot, sort of on the wall of religious paintings. I, I, I love them, especially in moments where they become really bizarre, right? Moments of all of a sudden, they're just hands in space doing things or sim- symbolic moments within that space of trying to make sense of the world, right? So we're always trying to make sense of events in, in artworks. And all of a sudden, these surrealist moments and these bloody moments, and I mean, what life must have been in terms of the visibility of death, right, in those moments. And there's this incredible um, little church just 45 minutes outside of Rome of where um, St. Benedictus was supposed to have sort of uh, lived. And anyway, in this one cathedral, there is a little room and you can't go into the room and you can't come out of the room. It was just built with bars and there's a painting of the devil on the wall and they've imprisoned the devil. And I mean, so so just these moments are fantastic. Then you just sort of go back and you can believe that so many hundred years ago and I'm laughing and in this moment I'm really being moved by it so then you can go on but there are tons of other ones I mean there's there's you just take for what you need in in different moments yeah Matisse had this Cezanne painting that he bought the some bathers and he's he would look at it every morning as a I know that I read the biography I know that I love that I I think about that who do I need to look at every morning when I'm having breakfast to fill my soul right at the same time, Matisse didn't want to drive, right? He didn't want to ruin his eyes. I think our eyes don't work in the same way, Ben, you know? I think we don't have the same experience or we can't, or maybe we do. I mean, what am I, who do I know? But I was just going to pick up on this idea of like gaining fortitude from other, other artists. And, and what, what Matisse said about that painting is that for Cezanne, it was all on the line. And and he kept pushing forward. And in a way, Matisse argued that Cezanne was a kind of moral example as much as a sort of an example of how to paint. It was a moral example of just battling through, you know. No, I think we should be really conscious of the positions that we put forward as makers of anything, makers of paintings, of sculpture, or of music, as makers. What is that position in the backdrop of, of its priority 
Is it conservative? Is it basically confirming values of the past? Or is it willing to challenge and push through? Because there's a lot of, you know, we're in this moment where so much is accepted. We don't really have in the same way that there was in Matisse's time. We don't really have a kind of a clear value structure of what is contemporary culture that we're, or what is the future supposed to, what is the future we're trying to go for? Because I, I'm very critical of nostalgia, let's say, in contemporary painting. Uh, because I do think that the problem with nostalgia is exactly that. It confirms values of the past. And I read someone saying they don't understand what is the problem of nostalgia. So much of what we make today is so shit. They like the stuff from the past. And I want to distinguish that, of course, I, I agree. And that's the problem. But to consume things of the past is very different than to make things that still resonate the past, right? That's the problem. That's why things are shit right now. So, so to be the, a consumer of, of culture is very different than to be a maker of something fresh. Let's move on to contemporary artists now. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I mean, to some extent, I think about Lee Lozano as contemporary still and, and Richter. I mean, I love his, his writings. I go to his writings very often in very desperate moments, his interviews. But more contemporary day-to-day artists are, are people that I know, friends that I know, um, video artists like Erika Nissanen, who's a Finnish artist whose work I love, and Nathaniel Mellers, who's my partner, whose work I eat up. Very contemporary artists like that. Um, Jakob Ferry, he's from Kosovo. I love his work. Ahmed Ogut, who's from Turkey, who's very, who, who, are, who are friends of mine, who, are, who I, you know, we, I, I love that they, they make the work they make, basically, you know. And... and- how much of a dialogue do you have with them about your work? I'm always intrigued by how much artists are in a discussion with their peers or how much there is a certain level of moral support in general. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. I mean, with Erica and with Nathaniel and with uh, when I see Ahmed, there is discussion and there is a kind of a, um understanding of a shared value, right, about breaking things, about, about let's say, the role of humour in what it can do for this breaking of things. So discussions can be often silent discussions. The discussions could be simply a laugh, right? That's what I mean. So discussions aren't always discussions. Discussions are like a look or a laugh or... Uh, so, yeah, in, in many ways, they are, they, they, they're there, yeah. I wanted to ask you about certain artists that I see you as sort of part of their lineage to a certain degree but I'm not sure actually whether you would see yourself within that territory which is people that are dealing with abjection you know an artist that's also in LA like somebody like Paul McCarthy and then also um, Mike Kelly people who who court abjection who play with humor but also dealing with a kind of dark territory that you've talked about a great deal Definitely. I mean, I've had such a great opportunity to acquaint Paul and talk to him about his work. And, and obviously, Painter, the video of Paul's video Painter, affected me massively, right, when I, when I encountered it, which was very late, I have to say, in my education, both in Oregon, which was very um, limited to simply painting technique, let's say, and then to in, in Yale, which was very steeped in East Coast background. Um, Nathaniel introduced me to Paul McCarthy's work much later. I mean, I mean, can you imagine someone who's, you know, so late? So it was, it, it was very interesting to me later on realizing how afraid people were in actually accepting, let's say, this lineage of abjection. And obviously, if I had studied in, in Los Angeles, I would have gone that in doses. But 
but not outside of it, which is quite interesting, right? Um, of also where we are right now within sort of New York painting and within, within the art world, right? There are not so many of people who are willing to risk it all and, and you know, put it all forward like that. Do you feel something distinctive between the communities, the art communities that you experience? Because you lived in Brooklyn for a bit, didn't you? Very, very short, a few months only. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever think that I was ever really ex- experienced Brooklyn. I do think there's something, let's say like Nicole Eisenman, who I've also admired for a long time, is of, I think she also incorporates the abject, you know, in many ways, uh, especially in her 90s drawings. Or Sue Williams, Sue Williams' very early black and white paintings, you know, which dealt with rape. And, you know, that was, that was incredible. I mean, I, I was, again, close the door and look at these without letting anybody else in Oregon see what I'm looking at uh, because they would judge me. <laughs> so um, there were those East Coast moments, too, of the, the women. Lila Zano's work is quite abject, you know, all the sort of texts there. I mean, I think within the art world... I think, sadly, what the trend has been is that um, money has destroyed so much of what people feel um, at liberty to do. And I mean that in terms of museum shows, right? So it's so expensive to ship a show. This gallery will pay for it all. Let's have that show then. And there's no funding in America. And all this stuff has really changed young artists, what they see what they're, right? I mean, I, I, whoever I meet, whoever knew Kippenberger, I asked them, tell me Kippenberger stories, right? So Paul McCarthy told me so many amazing Kippenberger stories and, and talk about, you know, breaking it all. And I mean, he was drunk doing it, but whatever, whatever makes you do it, right? Sort of the politeness, the, the fearful politeness that we are, the, the fear of losing it all. So nobody wants to lose it. Everybody wants to sort of to get it so we're all ever so polite and then everything becomes oh so mediocre and without any spine so not to say that generally but I guess that's been the trend I think sadly culturally to become more conservative in the way we're expressing ourselves and that's that is also interesting I think historically when we look at it to see why so much um, pattern and decorative and blur right everybody's doing blurry things and I'm fascinated by that and I think it's like the fear of the concrete fear of saying something that actually makes that I mean, myself included, right? I mean, so it's quite interesting. In Los Angeles, I do think that Hollywood and in general, the film culture, its energy is so heavy. It pulls you in. It pulls your, everybody who makes anything, right, gets affected by that um, energy pool. So that's a, that's a distinctive Los Angeles feel. I lived in Berlin for nine months in the early 2000s, and that was probably one of my first culturally, I came directly from Oregon to Berlin, and that was quite wonderful. And I think that has its own distinctive energy of, of like a leaf just floating in the air, free. What a nice image. What a nice image. You mentioned being a mimic there. And I wonder, does that determine what you have pinned to the studio wall? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> just some notes about passwords that I can't forget. Right? It's... it's uh, um, yeah, and, and I mean, I, I can't even stand my own work after a while. It has to all, as you see, be turned around um, because it also affects um, the clarity of where it needs to go in a, in a given day, in a given moment, and the distraction. So who do I go back to again a lot, um, or I have their books on my table, is De Carico, for instance, right now. And, you know, he's someone who really dealt with painting in the 20th century, 
Well, I think interesting thing about the Kiriko is 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 his approach to light and shadow, and, and it seems to me that that's become such a crucial element of your work the way that you develop the contrasts of light the evanescence of light the solidity of light tell me more about that could somebody like de Kirico influence the way that you depict light or is it just a, is that too neat a kind of way of thinking about it it would be problematic if he showed me the way right it would be very problematic because he would i would understand his way so the thing is i can just eat it and just be really happy Right. Um, at the same time, someone actually, one of the paintings at LACMA, which I, I, whenever I go to LACMA, I go to it, it's by Stanton MacDonald Wright. It's a painter and it is called Synchrome in Purple. I mean, of course, things influence you, but not to show you. They just, they could, they could rise such a level of curiosity than for you to go and, and scratch and find your way. Right. So that's, I hope that's the way people understand that's the way we have to learn. Um, I mean, you know, and the, the problem right now with painting is that we're consuming so much of it not in person. So this becomes a problem of, are we learning how to make a painting object or are we just putting images as images that can be viewed simply as images and no longer, and if we're in front of it as an object, it just falls apart. Its edges don't hold. It doesn't make the magic, right? Similarly, if I look at, let's say, de Chirico in a book, it's similar. It's not magic. It's my projection of what it, that object could have been. I'm not even aware of its scale, of what it will do to my body, right? There's an incredible essay by Huxley where he talks about, um, I think it's called something to the doors of perception or something. And he's talking about the failures of Van Gogh's chair painting in relation to actually being on psychedelics and seeing light and he doesn't realize that he's actually looking at an image of Van Gogh's chair painting and saying it's failure, not in a museum looking at that painting. And I really want to talk to Huxley about how could you, you brilliant man, make this massive, you know, like error of judgment about the power of that object and its image failure. So this is, yeah. And this is the problem of thinking about as a painter this is kind of the limitations that you work with right and and hoping that people will actually go to museums and see things and be affected you know how neatly you segued into my next question, which is all about museums and galleries. So which museum or gallery do you visit the most? So, you know, being in L.A., I I go to all of them. I mean, I'm in East L.A., so it's a bit of a schlep, but whenever I go anywhere, I go to all the national museums that I can um, because I didn't for so much of my life, right? I, I, even though Tehran has, I mean, I don't come from a family of art lovers or artists. You know, we just had to... um, terrible landscape paintings that were shipped from Thailand by my grandfather growing up and that was that right so which of course is is what I'm saying now but of course you know as a child you grow up on the floor and I consumed all the the rugs which you know are so there's things that just go into your brain that you don't realize what has gone into your brain which is the best way right indirect cultural influences are the be- are the most um have probably the most staying power. But museums here, yeah, I go, I go everywhere. I mean, the Prado, and I, recently, one of my last trips before the lockdown was to Vienna. 
and the collections of the National Museums in Vienna, and, and they have one of the best, you know, Bruegel and Flemish collections, which I was so surprised about. You mentioned it earlier on, but which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? It's tough what you would define as a cultural experience. I mean, what isn't a cultural experience, right? So in Iran, again, um, so much was lockdown, you know, war, revolution, and a cultural break of what had happened in the past. So maybe my, I, might have, I have very young parents. They were in their 20s when they had me. So they had a lot of, every night was a party at our house. So probably my parents' parties every night, constantly falling asleep to, you know, 70s disco was probably the cultural experience that changed my life, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? So in Iran, poetry is a way of speaking. I was speaking that I'm very sad I didn't fully get indoctrinated with, but I still carry. So poets, I, you know, Sohrab Sepehri and Furukh um, Farakhzad, which are contemporary, modern Iranian poets, which I would have by my, by my bed and just read. And very, very depressed Furukhara committed suicide, very like it, French, you know, um, suicide era kind of poets of, you know, to die before you die kind of, thing, of positions, which, you know, this, this, this French philosophy of, you know, Sartre, they also really affected Islamic uh, scholars and the ones that really affected the revolution and, you know, people and, and martyrdom. You know, it was, it was a very, very French philosophy influenced Islamic reading in the 70s so what yeah so there's a bit of that there was some of that I I, I'm really interested in because I I I grew up with that around me and so to understand it I read a lot of this sort of Islamic philosophy that was influenced by that but then um coming back to now what do I read right now I'm reading Jung's red book black book which has been really lovely to read in the pandemic because he was going through a crisis of a kind of a pre-World War II crisis. And so for him to make sense of these shifts in Europe in these books is really, um, is quite lovely to read right now, to try to make sense of it. Um, I mean, I read everything. I mean, I try to read everything. Who has time to read everything? But it's accumulative, right? I'd like to go back to Solaris. Solaris is something that I feel everyone should read every year because it's so incredibly mysterious and all-consuming. It's like the book that tells you everything you need to know about life and the mysteries of it. Um, but I don't read it every year. I just like to think that I should. Yeah. <laughs> fiction, I like a lot of turn-of-the-century fiction because I think pre-cinema fiction is very cinematic. So I love that. Like Lawrence, it's like, it's like a movie when you read it, right? It's, it's so... I, I love Lawrence. I love everything Lawrence. His... His essays on, there's a book he wrote of critique of American literature that was quite forming for me in terms of thinking about things even critically. How do you play with things? How do you write critical texts? I read in an interview that you said that his take on The Scarlet Letter by Hawthorne really influenced your own take on the US, right? Definitely, definitely. I loved it. Obviously, he lived in the US. He left England and... I think he, you know, his trip, he went to Italy and he went to South America and his own trips, I think, in his own um, an anxiety of space, you know, environment can affect us so much, so profoundly than we're willing to admit how little we are in relation to our environment. 
And he really deals with that in his writings and his relationship to America, both really admiring American authors and, and being quite, eh, not so sure of them, <laughs> you know, and, and his reading of Pearl as a symbol of America and Hawthorne. So the, the idea of that the child is the new, which is, of course, not a new idea. Everybody uses the child as new light, new form. It's, it's continuous. But that, his affirmation of that way of reading things gave me the sort of strength to push forward with my own take on that. When I saw the Shit Mum series, the inevitable connection that one might make is with Freud. And I wondered about how directly you can relate that series to Freud and his, like, you know, the anal stage, etc. I think we've inherited Freud because he's so much now part of pop culture. I tell you, I've tried to read four of Freud's books and every time I'm left not understanding what he's on about because it's not... But everybody else has dissected it and has put it into our world, right? So I can't say that I've taken it directly from that. So it's not about necessarily the anal stages, an embodiment of an anxiety of just being shit and not, not being up for it and failing, utterly failing. And then the promise of that, right? The promise of that, if you simply allow that, if you allow shit to be, God, who was it? I think Bill Gates is making some amazing toilets where, for space or something where the, the shit that's accumulated is making tomato plants, right? So finally, if we're willing to deal with the shit, it'll be the answer to our hunger for the future on Mars, right? I'm intrigued by the, the, the concept of you arrived at the Shit Mum series basically through, almost through accident, through painterly accident. Can you say more about that? Definitely. Yes, I didn't have that idea. It didn't come from sketching. I was trying to... Um, I, I, was, I had taken eight months off um, from painting and just taking care of my second born. So when I came back to the studio, I thought I got to just make a few paintings as just getting rid of all the things that in my, in my mind's eye, which was a little baby. So I just thought I'll make a little bathroom painting for myself, a little mother holding a child, I'll get over it. And, and I did, I painted one and then I looked at it and I couldn't stand it. It was disgusting. It was so kitsch, you know, it wasn't possible. So I immediately tried to smear it away. Luckily, I smeared the figure, female figure first before the, the baby figure. Otherwise, I, would have, I might have not even seen the idea. So then this was a muddy figure with um, a pristine child. And I thought, that's my mother and child. That's the mother and child. Why haven't I... And then the shock of it. Why haven't I seen this before? Why haven't I seen this before? was so... Um, in a way, it was upsetting. You know? And then I thought, okay, I guess I have to go into this now and understand what, I'm, what excited me. So there was a moment of excitement. And I think these experiences in the studio is what makes me trust the material, back to our initial thing of trusting the medium to show you what is in the back of your head, which you haven't accessed yet. Um, let's talk about music. What music do you listen to, or other audio indeed, while you're, while you're working? It's definitely music. I, when I remember as a kid, when I, I learned how to ski, I couldn't really ski until I had headphones on with pumping 
dance music, and then I would have the guts of going down the slope. So this I carry. When I'm painting, I'm going down the slope, and I often need some serious, serious dance music to just go for it. But you know, not always. Sometimes, if I have to really focus, I put on music that's not um, that's not too distracting. No, I mean I do. I actually do have some. Like I have some things that I've listened to oddly for you know 15 years it's become ritualistic in a way to take away the distractions of oh I have to pay this bill and I'm late in paying that bill and I'm now just in the studio right and sometimes I listen to some music that I I mean I okay so I believe like Miles Davis to me is one of the biggest geniuses of again 20th century and specifically his Bitches Brew album is where I like my brain to be eventually in life his ability to create that is what I like to get to. So sometimes it's aspirational. The music that I listen to is what I like to access mentally somebody else. And, and then sometimes I need to, you know, go to Iran in my brain and I listen to music that emotionally puts me in Iran, basically. I read also that, you, that, that Leo Ferre was a particular... Influence. That's the one I've been listening to for 20 years and I have no idea what he's saying. He's, he's Belgian-French, so he speaks in, so I have no idea what it says. But I, I, I got this tape of his. It was a cassette in Berlin when I was there uh, 20 years ago from my Belgium um, studio mate who would always get drunk and tell me how terrible my paintings were. He would, every night he would just get drunk and say, this is not art, you're not making art. And he was totally correct. I mean, he was absolutely correct. I wasn't, I was making crap. And he, would, he introduced me to Keith Jarrett and Leo Fair. And I just loved that. It's the memory of that time. It's the memory of that space and that freedom of that youthful freedom of that experience still carries for me with that. I'm interested in the way that music manifests itself in your work because there's that one of your earliest animations which is called Music Man which obviously has a sort of musical score in it and I wonder what prompted you to use the score in that are you a musician yourself or was it just a sort of convenient compositional format on which to hang the animation as it were I think that work actually was very much inspired by Erka Nissanen's work the friend that I mentioned to you, he had made something. He, he uses music, actually, he, he, because he's a video artist. Him and Nathaniel both use music a lot as voiceovers. I mean, Nathaniel's a musician. So he, that, and, and I made that, and I realized I have no music, in fact. In fact, I, even though I was inspired by his work, I couldn't have music. And so it became, I switched it to, I have no notes. He's going to he's going to become shots on the musical bars and throw up. And so it's like then that, um, that deficiency creates the idea in my head of what do I have? What do I want to have? What, you know, what did I get inspired by now? And so that's what it comes to, yeah. That's soup. And then there's a couple of recent paintings which feature these sort of ominous-looking grand pianos with what look like bodies underneath them. So you've got a figure... which looks like a child at the piano and then beneath the piano there's these what look what could be a dead body can you say something about those these are very recent these are very recent so I don't know if I can say so much smart things about it yet because I don't know if I'm out of it yet I think I'm very much in it yet I know what I wanted to make was these dark spaces with a bit of a light so that was my safe space what if someone just opened the door slightly and I imagine them as dream spaces? Maybe they're like, you're, it's a nightmare. I was thinking about the painting, I think it's called The Nightmare, where that 
weird monster is on that beautiful body of that female figure, you know. And so what is the nightmare? And I, and I, I kind of needed a structure. Again, the piano came as... I, I, I can't speak so clearly yet. I don't think I'm out of that space yet. Maybe in a year, I'll understand what the hell I was trying to do. <laughs> or I could, or, or I could uh, not be ashamed enough to put it in words. Maybe I'm just too... Right? Paintings are, in a way, things that you can't articulate, that you're just too shy. I think I'm still... I haven't found words yet that I can, without a red face, express about those paintings. It's really, I think I find that really fascinating because, again, it talks about the, the, this sort of connect or disconnect between spoken or written language and painterly language. And, and your primary medium is paint. So, you know, I shouldn't really say this on the, in the context of a podcast, but what, you don't have to explain it. Right. You just make an image and that's it. That's that expresses what you need to say. Absolutely. And I mean, I hope that for me and, and the whole idea is for whoever who needs it, whatever it should say to them at any given point, right? That there is that my intent is absolutely irrelevant. It just did for me. And the only thing is that we are so similar as human beings that very probably there will be such a, that we will share unless we project differences onto each other. And unless we project space between each other, that very often we will in fact need similar things and so we can use things that we make each other you know for each other or by different people but that but that to say that the problem of that of course is art education that in our global culture that is a it's a dying thing in in public education right that the most glorious thing is for everybody to make something that they want to make themselves that to consume it is one thing right as cultural artifacts but the glorious thing is everyone just goes and just does a little doodle for themselves and feels it, feels that few moments, right? And how, and I think as, as an artist, you become so aware that we need to really work on reinvigorating our society with an education into, for the visual things that we make so that, so that any of it has a reason to be, you know. Have you taught in art schools? Yeah, yeah, I've taught not not as much as I like to, but I, I've taught um, in grad schools mostly, a little bit as visiting artists, so many places, but at USC for a few years in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just did a, a, the summer at Bard on Zoom. Because of Zoom, I'm able to do much more than I could have otherwise, right? I love it. I do love engagement with 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 artists, with young artists, old artists. Um, I've taught a few, like, um, first grader, second grader classes in, in Los Angeles with part of this um, great organization called the Crayon Collections, which is about going into um, public schools and, and sort of doing some stuff like that. It's wonderful. Is there a particular discipline in your working life that you view as an essential ritual? Well, this is so interesting. You know, I talk to some friends who are physicists and they say, Tala, okay, so you paint, but what's your hobby? Like, what do you do, right? Like, what, what else do you do? And I, I, then you really feel like, ah, you're really missing out on life, you know, because, because uh, damn, what the hell is my hobby, right? It's like painting becomes such a problem you have to solve. It becomes, you know, you have to do everything and nothing so that you have the energy that you want to have in the studio, right? 
And so it's very, it, it becomes quite a problem because then you kind of miss out on life. You don't do anything, in fact, right? It's, it's a big problem. So I'll tell you at one point, uh, so ritual-wise, wake up in the morning. <laughs> That's my ritual in the morning. That's really important for my paintings is to wake up. But I do, I have plans, you know, I have big plans of sailing, let's say. I like to go in the water. I'm terrified of the water. Again, this fear. Or horseback riding. I love to like learn to do things that give me some speed. Motorcycling, take some motorcycling classes, you know. So talk to me in a few years. Let's see what I've done. Or I've just maybe made a bunch of paintings about horseback riding, motorcycling, and the such. <laughs> If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? That's such a tough one. It's like you have so many that you might love. I'm going to fail at this. I'm going to regret the one I say. But there is this, and I don't know the name of it. I even try to find it for you, but I can't. But there's this painting at the Met that is this romantic, very, very precise painting of, this, of the Greek mythology of you know the sculptor who sculpts the female figure and then the gods are kind to him and he becomes to it comes to life and she becomes a real figure right it's pinocchio right so there's a painting of that by someone i don't even know who that is a torso size big and i i love it it's such an affirmation of what if it could all become real oi <laughs> you know? so that's going to be the one i pick even though i can't give you a name or a date or an artist and lastly what's art for Oh yeah, what's art for? Well, I have big I have big expectations of art. You know, I think art's for shifting consciousness. I think it's um, to externalize events, to to make to make sense of them. I think it's um, for us to know humanity, you know, through it. So I mean, I have I have very big expectations of what it's for, and then of course it's like at the same time, and I think a doodle will suffice. By the way, so I think everyone should start getting that pen and that paper and just making marks and believing that they will change consciousness through that. And I mean it. I absolutely mean it. Their own consciousness first and thereby everything else. Tala, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Tala Madani has an exhibition opening at Pilar Corias in London in May, obviously assuming the UK lockdown has eased by that point. She also has an exhibition opening later this year at the Museum of Contemporary Art, or MOCA, in Los Angeles. And that's it for this episode, and indeed for this present series of A Brush With. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to learn more about further episodes, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a look at the latest top art world stories, the major shows and the big issues every Friday. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on a brush with are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalal. Huge thanks to Tala Madani. We hope to see you soon. Bye for now.
This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.